What is wrong with America today? What's wrong with the world? Let's just back up. What's wrong with the world today? You can see some of y'all itching. You're like, I know this one. <laughs> we can just even ask broader than that. What is the great human affliction? What's wrong with us or them? Because there's nobody that thinks this is great and it's just the way it ought to be. Everybody's got an opinion on what's wrong with the country and what's wrong with the world and what's wrong with people, what's wrong with my family. And you know what your problem is? You ever hear somebody say that to you? But we, as Christians, do not have to wonder what the problem is. We have the answer. It's been revealed to us in God's Bible, His Holy Word. And we've been building up to this, and I've already given it several times, but this is where Paul will build to his climax. Romans has taken us to some dark, uncomfortable places in the beginning here, hasn't it? Chapters 1 and 2 and 3. Like, this doesn't feel very joyful. This doesn't feel very happy. But I hope that our discomfort has not been because we have forgotten these things. I hope it's more dis discomforting because we don't like to think about where we might be without Jesus. And not, this doesn't seem like the kind of thing the church should be talking about. The Bible has taken a long time to describe this because it's important that we remember and in chapter 3, verse 21, we will begin our long celebration of the good news of Jesus Christ. We're going to use the term salvation an awful lot. But if you miss the terrible, inescapable, bad news of sin and death and hell, you'll miss it. And you'll be sitting there hearing about salvation and thinking to yourself, salvation from what? Heresies have grown up from not understanding this. And I'll tell you what the problem is. The problem with this country. The problem with the world. The problem with this city. It's you. And not you collectively. You individually. Personally. You are what is wrong. You and everything that you represent. You and that infection that is inside of you called sin is what is wrong. And it has condemned you to an eternity apart from God forever in a place called hell. That is the problem. As we read in chapter 3, verse 9 of Romans. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Now he says, what then? He's looking backwards. Paul is beginning to draw a conclusion, especially in this verse from chapter 2, because he was addressing the, the prideful, arrogant Jew who thought that being part of God's covenant people was enough to exempt him from the wrath of God. But Paul spent a long time explaining, no, 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 no. It's not just enough to have the law. You need to keep the law. And then at the very end of chapter 2, he was answering the question, or I'm sorry, the beginning of chapter 3, what advantage has the Jew? And he says, I'm not saying there's no advantage to being a Jew, but he's saying, but if you don't keep God's covenant, then there's only judgment waiting for you. So he then says, what then? What's the conclusion here? Are we Jews any better off? And that's the way most of these translations, uh, all of them actually put this, is, is to be better off. But I found this fascinating. That word for better off is proecho, and it means to surpass, right? To extend beyond something. And this, depending on how you, you take it in context, is either a middle or a passive verb. Stay with me here, okay? 
A middle verb is something that you do to yourself. Passive is something that is done to you. So he could be saying one of two things. Either, so have we then surpassed the Gentiles or have the Gentiles surpassed us? You could just as easily translate that verse both ways, which I think is a, is a great use of the Greek language by Paul to say either way. Do we have an advantage or do they have an advantage? And the answer is no. Neither one. The Jews have an advantage over Gentiles in terms of knowing God's law. But in terms of sin, despite their status, they have no benefit over Gentiles. And because of the way this verb is, is written, you could just as easily flip it around. Gentiles have no advantage over Jews either. When it comes to sin and salvation, nobody has any leg up over anybody else. So whatever we're going to talk about today, there is no status that you can have that will put you up over somebody else. And also, nobody else has anything over you. He gives his conclusion. All are under sin. That whole detour in chapter 2 and 3 is brought into this verse. All are under sin. This is the bad news that Christians must be unafraid to face. That we are all under sin. Is this pleasant to talk about? No, it certainly is not. But that's exactly why we have to talk about it. Getting a diagnosis from the doctor about a disease you have is not a pleasant conversation, but it absolutely must be had. What is this here? Sin. The Greek word is hamartia. And it means to miss the mark. It means to deviate from a standard. It means any kind of wrongdoing falls under that term sin. Any kind of evil, any kind of wickedness or wrong is sin. Sometimes we try to give it this lofty definition, like Hitler sinned, but my next door neighbor, she's a sweet old lady, she doesn't sin. No, no, no. Any kind of wrongdoing, any missing of the perfect standard, unless you are Robin Hood shooting the arrows one through one another right down the middle, you are a sinner. And he says we are all under sin. This is the Greek word hupo. It just means under, but this phrase, to be under something... Speaks of authority. What does it mean to be under sin? Think of an MMA match where somebody's being pinned down. You are under them. To be under a king. To be under a slave master. That's the problem. We are under the power and the mastery of sin. It's not something that we can cut a deal with and negotiate with and try to get around. You are subjugated beneath sin. This is what it means to be human. This is something that every one of us has to face. David wrote in Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. We love those little babies when they're born, but every single one of those little babies is born under sin. Just as every Israelite was born under the authority of Pharaoh. We are born under sin. Sin is not something that you acquire. That there was a point in your life where you did something and now you're a sinner. It's not something that is introduced to you by the culture. You throw somebody out into the woods like Tarzan and they're just never going to sin again. That's not how it works. It is the invasive parasite in the human soul. It afflicts us. It lords over us. And we can be so used to it, we can't even conceive of life without it. 
And we start to say foolish things like the failings of humanity are the beauty of humanity. Every man, woman, and child is born under sin. Now that's modern heresy, isn't it? They say that everybody is born through no fault or decision of their own, is born under sin. Well, we just can't accept that. That's not right. How dare you say something like that? You don't even know every person. You don't know their story. You don't know where they're from. You don't know the reasons for why they did something. Even the, the villains in our movies now, we have to go back to when they're little babies and see why they turned into mass murderers so that we feel sorry for them. That's not how it works. Everybody was born into sin. And the Bible does not shy away from that. Other philosophies and other religions, they know that it's there, but if, if you're a Buddhist, it's manageable. If you do the right things, eventually you will gain mastery over it and you won't have to deal with it anymore. Or perhaps you, you follow Islam. There's nothing you can do about it. The best you can do is hope that Allah is pleased with you. Or philosophies that try to explain, well, it's, it's foolish to talk about it. If that's the way it is, then it, it, doesn't, really, it doesn't really matter. And it's, it's an, a refusal to look directly into the mirror of Scripture and see what we really are. And the Bible does not shy away from a hard truth, which is that we are all under sin. Every single one of us was born a sinner. And as we see here in verse 9, there is no group, whatever your identity, whether you are oppressed or an oppressor, whether you are a Jew or a Greek, whether you are rich or poor or American or Chinese or whatever, you are not unique in this respect. You cannot excuse iniquity and sin. And there's always one group or other that wants to come along and excuse their team of the sin that they've committed. We've seen this as we've gone through chapter 1, 2, and 3 now of Romans. And I'm going to remind us of what we've seen so far. We've looked at three different groups of people, and there's three different witnesses that Paul has called forth to witness against their, their behavior. The first group has been heathens. This is people that don't know God, don't pretend to know God, and don't even try to do the right thing. And they're out there. Romans chapter 1 talks about those who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And they forsake worshiping the creator and start worshiping the creature. And they forsake the natural use of their bodies for what is unnatural. And he gave the example of homosexuality, but he gave a whole long list of other things that also fall under that category. So Paul would look to those who don't know God, don't pretend to know God. How do you know you're a sinner? He says, the way you're living is not natural. If you were to just look at life, how ought we to live? How ought we to treat one another? The way you're acting is not right. It's obvious. Then he looked at the moral person. He began to look at the Jews who thought they were excluded from that indictment of chapter 1. And let's, let's look at this as a moral person. Somebody who maybe has some form of righteousness and some code and some standard. And they think, well, I'm not like them. I'm not like a school shooter. I believe in right and wrong. And I do my best to keep what's right and not do what's wrong. Paul pointed out their conscience. Doesn't your own conscience condemn you? Because you can pick whatever, you don't like God's law, pick whatever law you like. You can't keep that one either. You can't even hold to a diet for more than a few days. Much less keep all the laws. You can't keep every traffic law. And those are petty minor things. So why do you think that you're going to be able to be righteous before God? And also, again, looking at, at the Jew, but we can apply this more broadly to the religious person, to the Christian, the one that knows God and knows what's right. Well, no, you don't understand. I'm in a special category of person. I'm allowed to do things like this because I know what's right. 
Paul has leveraged scripture against them. What does the word say, though? What does the faithfulness of God demand? And he's going to give a long list of scriptures this morning. The word tells you, if you're religious and you believe in God and you go to church, then you ought to know better than to say that you somehow don't deserve the justice of God. All are under sin. The devil is cunning, but he's not the problem. The world is harsh and full of pain, but the world is not the problem. The problem-facing man is man himself. We're born into sin and we propagate its corruption. And that's life. That is where we stand. All are under sin. All are born under the authority of our slave master called sin. Verse 10, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul quotes from seven different Old Testament scriptures in that passage, which is why in your Bible it's probably formatted differently than the rest. These are quotations. And why is Paul doing this? Because it's important for Paul to remind us he's not innovating here. Paul is not coming up with new doctrine. Paul is not contradicting the Old Testament. But we as religious people have a tendency to ignore painful scriptures. We don't like it. We don't want to look at it. We know that verse is in there, but maybe if I don't read it, I don't have to worry about it. The Jews in Rome had come up with this theology that because we are not Gentiles, therefore we will be saved. Because we're circumcised, the rabbi said, we will never go down into hell. But Paul pulls out the Bible itself and says, read it. What does it say? And this is so important for us to know because verse 9 talked about how we are under sin. And in that sense, you are a victim of sin. But, in another sense, you are also a perpetrator of sin. And that is inexcusable. We don't excuse the concentration camp guards who talked about, well, just, it was, that was the time. Everybody was going that way. I, didn't, I couldn't say no. We look at them and we say, we, you should have said no. In the same way, we were born under sin. I couldn't help myself, the Bible says. But you've done the same things. And by the time you, you grow up, you are already part of what's going on. And he quotes from seven different scriptures here. I'll run through them. Their, their list is up there. But look at this. Verse 10. None is righteous. No, not one. He's quoting from Psalm 14, verse 1. And there's a little piece from Ecclesiastes 7.20 there. How do you get to heaven? Well, you've got to be a good person. There is no good person. There is no such thing as a good person. Let's put it this way. There is no such thing as a good enough person. Without any exceptions. And we say, well, what about this or that hero that we have? And then they die and we look at their life and say, wow, there's a lot of stuff going on that we had no idea about. Amen. Without any exception, there is no one good. No one understands. No one seeks for God. This is continuing that quotation of Psalm 14. That's verse 2. Then people will say, well, listen, I'm a spiritual person. I understand the truth. I, I seek after God. Paul goes, no, you don't. 
God said that. There's nobody that really seeks after God. People that claim to be seekers of God, they're just seekers of themselves. Haven't you found that to be true? It all turns into this circular, self-affirming, weird, spiritual, but pseudo-spiritual thing. I spend a lot of time thinking about myself and my life and making myself feel better for all the rotten things I've done. That's not spirituality. That's horrible. That's refusal to, because if you were really seeking God and you considered who God was, you would be shaken in your boots. Nobody seeks after God. Verse 12, all have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And that's Psalm 14, 3. Everyone has deviated from the good, and he says they've become worthless. I don't think it's right for you to tell people that they don't have worth. You're missing the point. That little instinct that we have right there, that desires to justify ourselves every time something negative is said about somebody, that's not fair. They're going to think that there's something wrong with them. There is something wrong with them. If cancel culture has taught us anything, it is that if you dig deep enough, you will find something reprehensible with everybody. And the world is doing this. They're playing this game of let's see who's perfect. And everyone's losing because there is no unrighteous. If you've deviated from the truth once, and here's the thing, we look at the world and they say, well, he just did that one thing. Why are you getting so upset? Sometimes I step back and say, do you not realize that that's what the justice of God is like? He looks at you and you deviated once. That's enough. You are now spiritually worthless. Worthless. Once is enough. Verse 13 is, a, is an amalgamation of Psalm 5, 9 and Psalm 140, verse 3. He says, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Your tongue demonstrates what's inside. Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. You ever say something and go, I don't know where that came from. It came from in you. That's what's in you. I don't know why I said that. That wasn't like me. No, it was exactly like you. You think, well, I'm going to judge myself by my best. Don't do that. You, you judge yourself by your worst day. Because where did it come from? It didn't come from outside of you. He calls it an open grave. It's full of death. He calls it the venom of asps is under their lips. We went hiking over the weekend, Jacob and Jaron and I, and we walked across this giant rattlesnake. I was sitting there shaking its tail. It was huge, you guys. And I'm sitting there thinking I was going to preach this verse, how terrified we were. Even though we were at a safe distance, like, if that thing really wanted, that thing would wreck us. It's a snake. It's a venomous snake. The venom is under its lips. And isn't that the way some of us are with how we speak to each other? Somebody walks in the room and you see that they're, and we all back away because we know what's coming. And some of you, you use your tongue to lash people up and down. And what comes out of your mouth is indicative of who you are. And you look at those texts you sent the night before and you go, come on, why would I act like that? That's who you are. That is your nature. It comes out of you. It wouldn't come out of you if it wasn't in you. Verse 14, he says, their mouth again is full of curses and bitterness. Psalm 10, verse 7, doesn't bitterness cause us to do horrible things? Because we think we're justified, something bad was done to me, somebody mistreated me, somebody abandoned me, society did this to me, I failed in this, therefore I'm bitter about it, and we start taking these petty acts of revenge against each other. I can't let you be happy, so I'm going to use my words to pop that balloon of your joy because I don't want you to be happy if I'm not. I don't want anyone else to succeed if I can't. 
I'm only going to touch your life for this tiny little bit. You ever come across, and I'm not, I'm not making a joke, I'm being very serious right now. Have you ever been in, in something silly like a service industry? You're at a gas station, you're at a, the store, you're at the DMV, something like that. And sometimes these things are just inefficient and there's nothing you can do. But have you ever come across somebody and you can tell their attitude is, our interaction is only going to last 25 seconds, but I'm going to make these the worst 25 seconds of your life and your day. Why do people do that? It's bitterness. It's revenge. And you do the same thing. Sometimes you're the one coming into that store and you're thinking towards that waiter or towards that person that's going to give you your food. I'm going to make this moment miserable for you. Why? They didn't do anything to you. Because you've got a grave in your heart and it's death coming out of you. Revenge, bitterness, pettiness. Verse 15. Let's read through 17. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. Move from talking about speech to talking about violence. That's a quote from Isaiah 59, 7 through 8. Violence, destruction, misery. Isn't that true of every heart? Is there any group more violent than an anti-war activist? Why is that? Consider that. We don't want war, and so in order for that, we're going to burn things down. We're going to smash things. We're going to throw bricks. We're going to hit people over the head. It's the same thing. It's the same exact thing. We do this in our own families and in our own lives. We threaten violence towards one another. We run roughshod over one another. Even at home, you have gangs that run through the streets. You go across the country, across the world. You've got these young men that get together and they, they make livings by robbing people and murdering people. And stealing what they have. That's everywhere. And we know, we, we've seen this in every movie because we know this about ourselves, that were society to collapse tomorrow, we'd be right back to where we were. we right back to all that. In verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. And isn't that where it all begins? There's no fear of God. You must fear the Lord, as Psalm 36.1 says. Fear the Lord. Fear that if I live this way, God is going to pay me back for what I've done. I don't think that's fair to think about God that way. Then you are a fool. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Well, I believe in God. I just don't believe that he's a judge. Then you don't understand what it means to be God. He is the judge of all the world. And the point he's making here is that the scriptures demonstrate the sin of all people. And many of these verses, in context, they're talking about this Gentile nation, or these Jews, or these people. But Paul takes this and says, y'all can't apply this specifically. It's for everybody. And so don't sit there in your seat thinking, yeah, you know who needs to hear this? And you're thinking of this person, or that group, or I wish that church could hear this message. They need No, it's you. It's you. This would have been radical for Paul applying such verses to the nation of Israel itself. But you know, these things are true of you too. How can you look at your own life, characterized by things like this, and claim innocence before God? I wouldn't say I'm innocent, but I'm, not better. I'm better than most people. Most people who are also corrupt and not righteous. We use ourselves as the standard of comparison. And I say, God, when you look at somebody like Stalin, how can you say that I'm in the same category? God is the standard, not, not each other. Jesus Christ is the standard. 
who committed no sin, nor was there any iniquity found in his mouth. He went willingly to take penalty he did not deserve. That's the standard. How do you measure up to him? People say, oh, you can't use Jesus. You have to use Jesus. He is the standard. We can't come to God and say, you have to look at things our way. You don't know what it's like to be human. Oh, yes, he does. Because the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Isaiah 64, 6 says, We have all become like one who is unclean. All our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. When you go out in the autumn, and those leaves are falling from the trees, and one of them sits on, on the, the gravel or sits on your driveway, and it gets crackly and brown, and then the wind blows it, and it's kind of shh, off it goes. That's what your good deeds are like before God. The slightest puff of air blows it away. And in fact, in Isaiah 64, 6, when he says polluted garment, the words there, quite literally in the Hebrew, is a polluted menstrual rag. Now, every one of you just took, put your eyes away because you're like, that is not seemly to say in church. If you think it's even seemly to talk about something like that in church, you're starting to recognize what your sin is like in the presence of God. How dare you bring this into my presence? How dare you bring iniquity into the house of the Lord? Isaiah stood in the presence of God for five seconds and thought, that's it, I'm done. He was shaking and he said, woe is me. That's what our righteousness is like. If Isaiah the prophet and John the apostle and Daniel the dreamer would stand before God and pass out afraid that they're going to die, how do we think we have a chance and if this is not so, then where did all the pain and the evil in the world come from? It didn't just come out of nowhere. Well, the nature, nature just makes things... Where did mustard gas come from? We made that. Where did gulags and concentration camps come from? It was men like you that made that. Where did rape and murder and child abuse come from? Nobody taught us that. We'll say, well, no, God just lets these things happen. Do not you dare blame the wickedness of man on the holiness of God. Why is the world this way? Because of men, because of what women have done, because of what people do. And you say, they're doing more than me right now, so therefore this is happening to me. No, it is, that could be you doing that same thing. It's not just them. You too have the virus. You're infected. You have sin and you spread sin. This is the point of these verses. You're not only born a sinner, you are a sinner. Well, it's not fair to judge me for what, how I was born. It's like that, that's an academic conversation because the second you were born, you started sinning. You've committed sins as well as being born into sin. And the only thing was in you, he says, is, a, is an open grave. It's death. Oh, it might look great on the outside. The sarcophagus that they buried the pharaohs in. They're painted and they're covered in gold and they're beautiful. But you open it up and it's full of dead men's bones. Like, really? All of this to cover that? That's what your heart is like. You are under sin and you also commit sin. So verse 19 says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. 
Paul speaks of the law. Why here? Because he just quoted at length from the law, from the Old Testament scriptures. To remind the Jews of the purpose of the law. And remember, we saw in chapter 2, your conscience can serve the same function as the law. Which is what? Read it. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable. For through the law comes knowledge of sin. God holds up, let's say, ten commandments. Keep these. And when you look at those ten commandments, they are eminently reasonable rules. Thou shalt not kill. Sounds fair. Shall not commit adultery. All right. Thou shalt not covet. Well, that's not good either. The Lord goes, don't do any of these things. Can you keep those ten? Can't even keep one. Oh, I messed up. But oh, don't worry, I'll get it from you. You could start right now, and you still wouldn't get it. I say, well, that, that, there must be a problem with the law. No, the law is not wrong. The problem is with you. Well, those rules are too hard. And chapter 2 is like, fine, pick some other rules then. See if you can keep those. We've seen, I just mentioned it before, our culture has come up with a whole different set of rules that they're trying to get everybody to follow. We can't keep those either. Because the problem is not the law. The problem is you. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. By saying thou shalt not commit adultery, it reveals not the whole world is adulterers. It doesn't make them that way. It just shows them. Oh, you're telling me you're not supposed to do that? Oh, I can do that. No, you can't. That's why God reminds us of his standard. To says, silence the voice of every opposition. That means everybody that would dare to step into the courtroom of heaven and say, not guilty. He says the law exists to put that to rest. In the courtroom of heaven, we are all accountable to God. That word for accountable is amazing to me. It's hupadikos. Dikos means righteous. We've talked about it already. Hupo, we talked about this morning, means under so, under law or under judgment. The word it literally is a technical term for under indictment. So, when you're brought in before to the judge to have your trial and you're in handcuffs and you're standing there, you're under indictment. The trial hasn't happened yet, but you're standing there and it's very clear you've broken the law. It says, nobody gets to come in and say, I didn't do it. Goes, yes, you did. The crime is being a sinner. Well, I'm not a sinner. Well, let's look at what the law says. Have you broken it? Well, everybody has. Now you're getting it. Paul has already told us exactly what the judgment is going to be when the gavel falls in heaven, and it will be guilty. No one's going to stand before God and he's going to say, you're innocent, not guilty, you're free to go. No one will be justified, he says. Justified is declared righteous. You're not going to stand before the justice, right? We call them the justice of the peace. The justice is not going to declare you to be just, because you're not. Whatever your standard is demonstrates the awareness of your own sin. God is our holy judge. He created this world. And before the world existed, we're going to learn about this Wednesday in Exodus chapter 3. God was all that existed. He was the only thing that was there. And he made the world. And into that world came anti-godness, ungodliness. God who is full of truth, there came lies into the world. God was full of love, hate came into the world. All of this then corrupted his creation. He cannot allow it to continue because you know sin is not just the wrong thing, it's the painful thing. Sin is anything that makes life worse. And the longer it continues, the worse and worse it gets. 
2 Thessalonians says that if God was not restraining evil now actively, the world would have destroyed itself by now. So God must eradicate that world-corrupting force called sin. And you are part of that. Yes, Lord, judge sin. Are you sure? Because you are under that judgment. You're guilty. You're part of it. You're a perpetrator. And the law demonstrates that. And don't presume, we already read this in chapter 1, on the kindness of God. I don't think God would do that. God loves us. God's too kind. He's too nice. He's told you right here. That's his kindness. His kindness is telling you ahead of time what's coming. That's the kindness of God. God is not Santa Claus in the sky. Everybody's nice. Everybody's going to get a present. Everybody's going to have a merry, merry Christmas. He's a holy, just judge, and you are guilty. He told us from the very beginning, Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, he told Adam and Eve, the day you eat of that tree, you will surely what? Die. He told us. Ezekiel 18, 20 says, the soul who sins shall die. If you sin, you shall die. And that's not just physical death. This is eternal death. Separated from all light. Separated from all love. You're not going to be like ACDC, partying with your friends in hell. I'd rather go to hell if I can be with my friends. You won't be. You'll be alone. Entirely alone. Separated from any light. From any love. It's eternal torment. Eternal conscious torment. Because you have committed an eternal sin. You've corrupted and broken everything that was good about the world. Consider your life. How many days have you ruined? How many people's spirit have you broken? How many times have you cheated and lied? And how many people are worse off because of you? You must be punished for that. The Bible calls hell a lake of fire. You ever seen a lake when it was churned up and the waves were roiling and the water was stirring? Imagine all of that flame burning flame that you'll be tossed into, calls it outer darkness, away from the light, away from anything that is good, away from any common grace, as we call it, where he says the fire is not quenched and the worm does not die. The Bible speaks of hell like being eaten out by worms, your stomach being eaten, your mind, your brain being eaten by worms that never die. It's never over. You never finish. You ever tried to light a candle? And you're holding the, the match or you're holding the lighter and you can't quite get it and the fire starts to touch your skin a little bit. You find a pull away, ow! And you feel that, that weird sensory deprivation on your finger from where it burned. Imagine not being able to pull away from that. Imagine your whole body being put into that forever and ever. That's what hell is. Burning, burning, burning. Outer darkness where the worm does not die forever and ever and ever. That's what's waiting for you. When you die, ever wonder what happens when we die? That's what happens when you die. That's hell. They say, wait a minute, in the last chapter it said that those who keep the law will be justified. But this is the thing. Those are exceptions that aren't real. Because if you could, then you'd be justified. But you can't. So you won't. All of that is building to this conclusion. You're not one of those people. Even if you could come up with some potentially perfect person that never did anything, you're not one of them. No one you love is one of them. That means eternal death. 
If you know that you have sinned, you know that you are a sinner. And if you know that you are a sinner, you know that you are guilty. And guilt means hell. So when you sin at home, in the car, wherever, when you fly off the handle and you lose your temper, when you lie, when you cheat, when you steal, when you lust, you ought to know that that very thing is what's going to send you to hell. And if that is true, how can we take the chance of maybe facing conscious, searing, everlasting torment for a night of frivolity or something else? Yes, I believe the Bible. I believe in hell. But, you know, I'm going to get my act together someday. Are you, are you out of your mind? You're going to risk that? You're going to risk that possibility? I'm going to tell you the story of Ahab from the Old Testament. Ahab was one of the most wicked kings the nation of Israel ever had. He married a Sidonian woman named Jezebel, who he allowed to bring about all manner of sin and idolatry into the nation of Israel. And you know the story, perhaps, where he stole a man named Naboth, had a vineyard, and his wife had Naboth unjustly accused and executed so that Ahab could take it. And the prophet came and said to him, one of these days you're going to die and the dogs are going to lick up your blood because of what you've done. Now Ahab panicked when he heard that. And there's a point in Ahab's story where it says he repented and God relented from the judgment he was bringing against him. And the next time you see Ahab, he's very religious. He's got 300 prophets in his court. He speaks the language of religious, righteous people. Let us ask the Lord. As the Lord lives, I shall do this. And he, he calls his prophets in, but we see them that they're not true prophets of the Lord. They're just there to provide a religious smokescreen while he does all the same things he wanted to do. And he thought that would be enough. And the Lord sends a deceiving spirit into the mouths of his prophets. And he goes off into a battle that he should never have gone into. And it says an arrow was struck at random and it hit him in his armor, and he died in his chariot, and it said that the dogs came and licked up his blood. Ahab thought, well, what I'll do is I'll be really religious, and I'll, I'll cover it up, and everything will be fine. But he never truly made that act of repentance from his heart. I'll go to church. I'll stand, and I'll, I'll look real pious during the service. You know, I might even tithe to that church, you know, that I think about it. I'll, I'll be part of what's going on. I'll find a bunch of teachers online and I'll listen to them. But what you see is over time, you have not changed a lick. And so you start to tweak those things to fit your sin. Now you don't want to hear anybody that's going to tell you anything you don't want to hear. You decide, you know what, I'm going to start using this church as a way where I'm going to climb the ladder and I'm going to make something of myself. I'm going to go right back to my sneaky old ways, except I'm going to be a hypocrite too because I'm going to cover it in my religion. I'm going to find teachers, all right, but they're going to tell me exactly what I want to hear. And then someday, the dogs come and lick up your blood. Paul brings us into the courtroom in Romans, and he shows us all to be guilty. That's the bad news. You're guilty. You're unrighteous. You're a sinner. You're going to hell. That's the bad news. This is what Romans has been building up to. Every person that drives by right now, every person you see when you're walking around the mall, every person that aggravates you because the line is long at the grocery store, they're sinners and they're dying and going to hell. That person 
is going to stand before Jesus Christ one day and the fire of his gaze with his feet like burnished bronze and he's going to look at them and he's going to say, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. And he'll be cast into the outer darkness, the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Do you get that? Now, you might say, what must I do? Well, Jesus and John the Baptist and the apostles all told us, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Throw yourself on the mercy of God. Say, God, I'm sorry. Help me. Forgive me. Ask for God's forgiveness. He'll give it to you. But let me tell you this. You are not promised the chance to do this tomorrow. I had a friend in college named Lauren. She was great. We loved her. She's a believer, godly girl, one of my friend's girlfriend who I'd known forever. She slept on the top bunk of her, of her bed in her dorm. In the middle of the night, she rolled out of her bed, hit her head on the countertop of her desk. Her brain started bleeding, and the next day she died. She had done nothing wrong. She wasn't being careless. She was a godly person. But just through one, as we say, accident, that was it. Her life was over. You're not promised tomorrow. You're not promised today. You're not promised that you'll get to make it home today. And then you'll have to face the judge. Are you going to face him alone? Or are you going to face him with the righteousness of Jesus Christ? Which we will talk about at length next week, but I'm not going to remove the sting of what this is trying to say to you. You've got to feel this fear deep in your bones. That when you close your eyes, you might not open them again. And the next time you do, you'll be standing before the judge. You'll be in a courtroom. If you truly believe this, Christian, you would be clinging to Jesus Christ so tightly, you wouldn't have enough strength or space to hold on to anything else. And I, listen, I'm saved. I believe in Jesus Christ, and so do you, most of you. You ought to be holding on to Jesus so tight because this is what's on the other side. Backsliding means that. Walking away from Jesus means that. So how dare we think, well, I'll just, you know, I'll get around to it. I'll take it easy. You know, I've got my life to live. I've got my wild oats to sow. I'm trying to build my business. I'm trying. Foolishness. And let me tell you something that I think specifically applies to this day in this age. I have never in my admittedly short life, seen the church so energized with so much passion than it is right now. But it is energized with passion for things other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. People are mobilizing. They're becoming activists. They're putting things online. They're marching in the streets. They're standing before their governors. And it makes me sit there and think, where was that before the political system got all out of whack? You mean you have all this energy that could have been directed towards missions or evangelism or the teaching of the word or the building of the church? And, and we're going to put it towards these things? How dare we? What's wrong with us? People are dying and going to hell. And we'd rather get online and rant about their politics than realize that this person dies, it's hell forever for them. And it's over. The worm will not die. The fire will never be quenched. And you say this and people go, well, you're just using that to ignore the real problem. This is the real problem. There is no other problem. Jesus knew that, which is why he sent us to go to the base. Go 
work with sin, Jesus said. None of it's going to get better anyway until people are saved. Don't we know that by now? The devil has harnessed our zeal and aimed it at lesser things. It's a tragedy. It's a danger. We've forgotten what Jesus died for. We're more concerned about the cultural value of Christianity than what it even means. Jesus said, you're a sojourner. You're an exile. They're going to hate you if you're standing up for me. And we get more riled up about somebody's politics, somebody's border policy on immigration, somebody's stance on the coronavirus than we are about the fact that people are dying and going to hell every day. I don't talk to him anymore. His politics are out of whack. Excuse me? That man needs Christ. And then his politics will get right. No, no, no. He's dead in his sins and trespasses. And if you're a believer, your mandate is to bring the good news to them. Well, they don't want us to. That's what Jesus said. He said, blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil things against you. We deal with that with one minute. And we say, you know what, gospel, we'll come back to you later because we're losing some rights. What's wrong with us? Jesus didn't die on the cross for that. He didn't die on the cross for America. He didn't die on the cross for your party or your stance or your views. He died on the cross for men and women, individual people whose lives are falling apart because of sin. And you have the answer. If you had the cure for the coronavirus and you kept it to yourself, they'd string you up in the public square, wouldn't they? You've got the cure for sin. You've got the antidote. You've got the answer. It's Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. And the world needs it. We've got to get out there and let them know. Because we are under sin. You're under sin. I'm under sin. Don't you care? The church, as we've said, we used to say this back in the day, it's not a cruise ship. It's not about making it as nice as it can for all those who are believers so that they can finish their life and come into the port in style. I'm going to tweak that for this generation. The church is not a battleship either. We're one of those rescue boats that the Coast Guard sends out when the ship's going down, pulling people out of the water. That's what we're here for. This is the problem. That's why I asked at the very beginning, what's the problem? What's wrong with America? What's wrong with the world? What's wrong with people? Sin is what's wrong with people. And until that's dealt with, there's not going to be any change. This is our battle. We get distracted by peripheral opponents. Yes, this is a problem. Yes, that's a problem. I'm concerned about that, and so are you. But the solution is the cross. Oh, Christians, the early church were mostly slaves under the tyranny of Nero. They were being taken, talk about your rights, they were being taken and dipped in candle wax and lit in fire on the streets of Rome. And Nero would mock them and say, now you truly are the light of the world. They'd have their skin scraped off. They'd have their heads chopped off. They would take their children. Peter's wife was crucified in front of him. And they said, deny Christ and we'll take her down from the cross. So we can handle a little rough waters, I think, for the mission. This is why we're here. This is why I'm here. This is the only thing worthy to give your entire life to. 
We have to be desperate, not for yourself. If you're in Christ, I'm not trying to scare you. I'm trying to remind you. And next week, we're going to talk about grace, and we're going to remember it, and we're going to sing blessed assurance. But this week, we've got to remember the fact that your neighbor who, well, they don't really like going to church. They don't really know if they believe in God. They're destined for hell. They're destined for eternal, fiery torment apart from God forever. Because we're all sinners. This is our enemy. And it's time for us to shape up, to get our priorities straight. Because you look through history, the ones that God uses are the ones that are just foolish enough to start preaching the gospel to a hostile generation. George Whitfield used to set up a, a pulpit about the size of mine, except he would stand on it. And he would go and he would preach it to people as they were going to the coal mines. And they thought it was great fun to try and knock him off of it every day. They would swing swords at it and try and chop it down. They'd shake it. They'd mock him. They'd throw dead animals at him to try and, while he's preaching, to try and knock him down. And yet all those people began to get saved. And the churches began to fill up with all these unseemly people that they didn't really want there. I don't want this church full of coal miners. What are you doing? Send them to some other church. This is a dignified, sophisticated place. You're bringing in people with rough clothing and rough speech into God's church, and the children are learning things they shouldn't learn. This is what the Lord uses. If we want to be used of God, don't look at the world and say, what's everybody concerned about? What's everybody worried about? What do we got to fix? What answers do we need to provide? We don't provide answers as Christians only. We provide questions. Because the world's asking the wrong questions. Are they not? You don't know what's wrong with you. You don't know what the problem is. You come to the doctor and say, Doctor, I've got this this runny nose thing. I've got to get this fixed. He goes, yeah, that's true, but you also have cancer. Okay, yeah, but, but, but it's runny nose, though. He wouldn't be a good doctor if he gave you a little prescription for cold medicine and sent you away. Nor are we good doctors if we ignore the main issue. I hope that the fear of the Lord will be struck into your heart because that is the beginning of wisdom. This bad news is so bad that we don't even like to talk about it anymore. You say, oh, just get to the good stuff. Get to the good news. We'll get there. But you've got to feel this. Your family, your neighbors, your coworkers, your heroes that you watch on TV or you watch online, they're dying in their sins. And you've got the answer that Jesus Christ took all of our sins upon that cross. And he offers us salvation freely. Salvation from what? Salvation from you. From yourself. From the infection that you were born into, that you have perpetrated and passed on to everybody you've ever met. There's forgiveness. But you've got to repent. Repent.